Hey guys, welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. I hope you're doing well. Before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know that I updated the podcast website a little bit last week. That's just thekillerkindpod.com. There's not much to it yet, but I'm hoping that one day we'll have the podcast merch for sale over there. Um, I'm not sure really what that entails, but I'm going to be trying to figure that out for you guys. Since a lot of you really liked the shirt and tumbler I have had made for the two giveaways we've had so far. I'm open to ideas of what else you want on the website, what else you might want to see. Um, Right now on the website, it's just information on the episodes I've put out so far. And there's a spot for case suggestions and ways to contact me for any reason at all. But you can always leave me case suggestions on Instagram like a lot of you have done already. Um, That's really the best way. But there's also a spot on the website too. So moving on to today's case. This is a case that may or may not have started my interest in true crime. This is a case that I feel have always just known about since as far back as I can remember. Today we'll be talking about the Columbine High School shootings from 1999. When I first started with The Killer Kind, I wasn't sure if I wanted to cover high profile cases like this, but then I remembered why I started the podcast in the first place, and that's to tell stories that need to be told and to give you stories that might help you in certain situations one day. God forbid you're in a bad situation, especially like this. Like I said, today's episode centers around high school. We all went to high school or we might be in high school now or have kids that might be going to high school. And high school is a scary, scary place for many reasons. I saw numerous fights in the hallways or outside of the school And teenagers can be very angry people. It's scary and sad. I would say I was the kind of person that was friends with everyone. I didn't really belong to a certain type of friend group. I was just friends with anyone and everyone. And that's just my personality. There were definitely a couple of kids that I had classes with that I tried to be nice to. That I thought for sure looked like the stereotypical kid that could shoot up the school. And honestly, I think that stereotype came from the two shooters in today's case. We'll get into their attire and how they looked um, later on, but the moral of the story for today is to just be nice to everyone and encourage those around you to do the same because you just never know what somebody is going through or what somebody is capable of, honestly. They could just be waiting for an opportunity to snap. And lastly, before we get started, I wanted to say that I might have bit off more than I could chew with this one. It's a massive case and I don't mean that there's just a massive amount of information on the shooters or anything I really didn't go too far into their backstory because I don't want to focus on them per se I want to focus on the survivors and the victims and just what everyone went through on that day not really glorifying the shooters if that makes sense because that has definitely been done since this happened anyways I just mean There are so many people who were involved in this that have since done interviews and told stories. And honestly, for the first few days of research, I just sat and cried listening to or watching several interviews. I wasn't even sure if I could get an episode together, Um, but I've done my best and I hope you guys like it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into today's case, the Columbine High School Massacre. 
1999, Littleton, Colorado was a very quiet suburban town. Many people have called it overwhelmingly ordinary, but it was a great place to raise a family. There was little to no crime in the area. It was just a quiet suburban area. Columbine High School was located in Jefferson County, Colorado, sitting on the west side of Denver, Colorado's metropolitan area, and it was the most populated county in the state. The large unincorporated region had a population of nearly 100,000 people, and 1,900 of them were enrolled at Columbine High School in the spring of 1999. April 20th was a beautiful spring day, just like any other. Students had prepared for end-of-the-year tests, and student-athletes were dressed up for a track meet that afternoon. The day really just started off like any other. That was, of course, until two fellow classmates, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, arrived to their high school at around 11.15 a.m. on that Tuesday morning. But let's start with the timeline of that day, which actually starts much earlier. So... At around 6 a.m., Eric and Dylan were supposed to attend their high school bowling class. This class was to be from 6 a.m. to 7.15 a.m., which is just ridiculously early in my opinion. But I know football practice, workouts, and other athletic sports take place that early these days too, so I guess it's not out of the norm. But neither of the boys made it to this bowling class that morning, which was extremely rare for them. However, A student told the bowling class teacher that she had seen Eric and Dylan in the parking lot of the AMF Bellevue bowling lanes that day and had even said hi to them, but they never made it to the class. What they were doing at this time is not quite clear, but it at least shows the boys were awake and starting their day of mass destruction, if you will. And we'll get into what all these two actually had planned because this was far more than just a school shooting like it was reported. Columbine was basically planned as a domestic terrorist attack on the school. In Eric Harris's journal, he wrote that he wanted to create as much destruction as Timothy McVeigh did in the Oklahoma City bombing in 1996. That bombing killed 168 people and injured 680 others. That bombing was the deadliest act of terrorism in the U.S. prior to the 9-11 attacks. So a lot of their early morning planning centered around creating the distraction, which I didn't even know about until I started my research on this episode. The distraction was a firebomb the boys placed in a field about three miles away from the school, somewhere along Wadsworth Boulevard. This was to divert authorities to that bombing during the time of the shooting that they had planned. The next thing they had to put together were the various bombs they wanted to place in other locations. I don't want to get too far into the various explosives right now, but just know they each had car bombs in their cars. They had a large duffel bag filled with explosives and various pipe bombs that they had wanted to place around the school. So let's keep going with the exact timeline here. So at 11.10 a.m., Eric Harris arrives alone at the student parking lot of the school. And he parks his 1986 gray Honda Civic in a space assigned to another student in the South Junior parking lot. Dylan Klebold essentially follows in behind him and he parks his 1982 black BMW in the student parking lot as well. He parks in a space assigned to another student too in the Southwest Senior lot. 
Their cars both pointed towards the school's cafeteria exits and entrances into the lower level. At this time, student Brooks Brown had just stepped outside for a cigarette when he sees Eric pull up in his car. He confronts Eric about missing third period, where they had a big test. Eric just laughs and said, it doesn't even matter anymore. Eric then said to him, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here and go home. Shortly thereafter, Brooks is seen by witnesses walking south on Pierce Street away from the area. This is the only person Eric and Dylan direct away from the school grounds. At 11.15 a.m., Dylan and Eric leave their cars dressed in long black leather trench coats and wearing wraparound sunglasses and walking into the school cafeteria. They both were carrying two large duffel bags containing enough explosive power to kill the majority of the students who were going to be arriving for the first lunch period very soon. The gunmen placed the bags on the floor beside two lunch tables and walked back out. For some reason, there were hundreds of other backpacks and bags scattered throughout the cafeteria, so the two duffel bags just blended right in. The duffel bags concealed 20-pound propane bombs timed to explode at 11.17 a.m. Eric had written in a journal that where he wrote the whole plan down in that 11.17 was the exact time for the high school cafeteria to be packed with the maximum number of students possible, which would have been about 488 students. One thing to note here is that the school did have surveillance cameras throughout the school, but it was at this exact time that Eric and Dylan had placed the duffel bags that the school custodian had gone into the video room to change the school cafeteria's surveillance videotape. Basically just changing out the tape to put in a new one. So the moment the two boys first walked in with the duffel bags were not seen on surveillance. That doesn't have much significance, I guess. No reports show that this could have stopped something from happening because in 1999, nobody would have thought much of it, honestly. Just two goth-looking kids going into the cafeteria. Much more of a red flag today, obviously. But anyways, after placing the devil bags in the cafeteria, Eric and Dylan go back out to their respective cars and wait for the bombs to explode. Based on comments Eric and Dylan had made in their infamous homemade videotapes, it was determined that the two planned to shoot any surviving students able to escape from the cafeteria after the bombs exploded. And I'm sorry, guys. I'm sure this is hard to hear. It's probably the one, one of the most, I don't know if it's gruesome, but it's definitely the most troubling case I've covered, in my opinion, so far. But you'll be happy to know that the bombs did not detonate as planned. Had they done so, hundreds of students would have been killed just by the explosion alone. And the library likely would have collapsed on the lunchroom due to the structural damage because the library was directly above the cafeteria. Fortunately for those inside, the bombs failed to go off. At 11.19 a.m., the Jefferson County Dispatch Center received its first 911 call from a person who reported hearing an explosion in the field where the guys had placed the distraction. There were two backpacks loaded with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane tanks that had been placed in the field. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol cans detonated, but the explosion and subsequent grass fire were enough to divert the attention of the sheriff's office and the Littleton Fire Department. Back at the school, Eric and Dylan were waiting for the bombs in the cafeteria to go off. 
However, as I mentioned, the bombs in the cafeteria did not go off as planned, thankfully. So they got tired of waiting. They then set the car bombs they placed in their cars. Then each of them grabbed a duffel bag and backpack, collectively containing two sawed-off shotguns, a 9mm semi-automatic carbine rifle, and a 9mm Tech DC-9 semi-automatic pistol, and headed back towards the school. They proceeded up the hill towards the top of the west entrance steps. This was the highest point on the school grounds. From that position, they were near the north side of the library and cafeteria, with the cafeteria entrance below them. A witness then heard one of the gunmen shout, Go! Go! And both Dylan and Eric pulled out their shotguns and opened fire. Brooks Brown, that I had mentioned earlier, said that after having that conversation with Eric, he was walking down the road, seemingly toward his house, finishing his cigarette, and that's when he heard the gunshots. Brooks said, I took off and started running. I went to a random house, called the cops, and told them I knew who it was. It was Eric. It had to have been. During the initial gunfire, students Richard Costaldo and Rachel Scott were sitting on the grassy knoll between the gunmen and the west entrance when they started shooting. Richard was hit with eight bullets, but he miraculously survived, although he suffered a critical injury to his spine that would cripple him for life. Rachel was hit four times by bullets from Eric's 9mm, taking a fatal bullet to the head. Eric Harris took off his coat at that point and dropped it near the stairs. He then reloaded his weapon. Moving forward, guys, there's a there's several student names in this. And honestly, I'm just going to butcher a lot of them. And so I really don't want to do a lot of last names. I will list on the Instagram post for this episode. I will list all of the ones who were deceased and just in order to remember them and just to, so you know their names. I just don't want to butcher them and and completely ruin their name when they don't deserve that, you know. So moving forward, I'm just going to be using first names only. So moving on. Lance, Danny, and Sean Graves, I will use his last name, had just left the cafeteria through the side entrance at the bottom of the stairs with plans to go to Smoker's Pit, which was at Clement Park across the street. So Lance could smoke. Lance saw Dylan and Eric standing at the top of the outdoor stairway, but thought the gunmen were just playing a senior prank. So the three friends headed up the stairs. Eric and Dylan targeted them next. Lance saw Danny get shot and attempted to catch him, only to be shot himself in the leg, foot, and chest. He saw Sean fall to the ground as well, then Lance himself went down. A short while later, Dylan Klebold came down the stairs and shot Lance at point-blank range in the face. Later, Lance said he only remembered seeing blue sky above him, but felt his face being jolted and feeling pools of blood below his mouth. Just before he blacked out, Lance saw his best friend Danny take his last breath. Lance suffered from a total of five gunshot wounds. His jaw and face were rebuilt, and he was released from the hospital on May 15th, 1999, which is just incredible. But Sean survived as well. He was shot a few times, including once in the back. He collapsed by the cafeteria door, 
and he was able to prop the door open, asking people inside to take the tranquilizers out of his bag. Heartbreakingly, he really thought he had been hit with tranquilizers because he couldn't feel his legs. Come to find out, the gunshot wound to his back caused him to be paralyzed. Luckily, he did retain feeling in the hospital later, and he was released on July 7, 1999. Again, incredible story there. Five students who had been sitting on the west of the stairs were shot at as they ran for cover. 15-year-old Michael Johnson was hit, but he was able to reach the outdoor athletic storage shed where he hid with three other uninjured students. Mark Taylor was among those five. He suffered a critical hit and fell. Crippled and unable to flee with the others, he played dead. He later survived, and in 2002, he and Brooks Brown lobbied against Kmart to stop selling to minors the kinds of bullets that he still had in his body. Teacher Peggy Dodd, who was in the library at the time, she said she looked out the window and could see Dylan, quote, standing on the hill just shooting. She said he had been a student in her class the previous year, and she remembered him as being a, quote, troublemaker who hacked into computers and wore tall Nazi boots and an overcoat. Peggy said that Dylan was holding a weapon with both hands and using a sweeping motion pointing towards the parking lot. And continuing on with the timeline, at 11.21 a.m., Dylan went into the cafeteria entrance, stepping on Sean Graves. Sean had collapsed at the entrance, as I mentioned earlier. He said he rubbed blood on his face and played dead. It was speculated that this was when Dylan was trying to figure out why the propane bombs had not gone off. At 11.22 a.m., the school custodian set the surveillance camera in the cafeteria to record again. There seems to be a little bit of a conflict here in the timeline because from what I first gathered was that Dylan was walking into the cafeteria or at least opened the door at 11.21 a.m. However, on other surveillance footage, like timestamps, the cafeteria should have been full at this time because at 11.24, the students were fleeing. So I don't know if Dylan just opened the door to see if the pipe bomb had gone off and realized that it didn't and he was waiting for it to. I don't know what exactly happened there, but um, we'll get into a little bit more of the timeline. And this is really the only slight discrepancy that I have um, or that I found. And I wouldn't say that's super significant, really. Um, I guess it could be. But anyway, so let's move on. So on the surveillance footage, when the custodian finally got it back up recording. Students were beginning to notice what was happening outside. Some of them went to the big front windows to have a look. And at that time, Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner, a community resource officer at Columbine, was sitting in his patrol car over by Smoker's Pit that I mentioned earlier that Lance and his friends were going to. He received a call on the school's radio from the custodian telling him he was needed at the student parking lot. A 911 call from a student at Columbine took place at 11.23 a.m. This call reported a female fallen in the south parking lot, saying that she may have been paralyzed. Deputy Paul Magor was actually en route to the diversionary explosion at Wadsworth when he got the call of the female at Columbine. So he turned around and headed over there instead. At 11.24 a.m., Coach Dave Sanders and school custodians John Curtis and Jay Gallantine 
entered the cafeteria to find out what was happening outside. Realizing the danger, they, with the help of a school security officer, directed students to get down under the tables or get out of the cafeteria by leaving through the east exits only. Students quickly realized just how serious the situation was. And if you ever see security footage from that day, nine times out of ten, the first thing you're going to come to is the cafeteria footage. And the footage shows all the kids scattering out of the cafeteria. Patty Nielsen was on hall monitor duty when she heard the commotion outside of the school. She looked out the west entrance and saw a male student carrying what she thought was a toy gun and assumed that a school video production was being taped or that it was some sort of prank. She didn't approve of how real it looked, she said, so she went out to tell them to knock it off. That seemed to be the initial thought almost everyone had, honestly, which makes complete sense because your first thought isn't that somebody could be really that evil. It's just just like in murder cases, when a jogger finds a body, they think it's a mannequin. You know what I mean? If you listen to true crime stories, you know what I mean? But anyways, student Brian Anderson had been told by another teacher to get out of the school because of the explosions and commotion. Not realizing the danger, he went out through the first exit he came to, which was the west entrance to the school. Going through the first set of doors, he saw Eric Harris outside the second set of double doors, but he knew Eric was in film class, so Brian assumed the gun that he was holding was a prop gun. Patty was right behind Brian. Turning, Eric saw the two of them heading his way, and he shot both of them, shattering the glass doors that separated them from him. Glass and metal fragments sprayed into the corridor, hitting Patty in the shoulder, forearm, and knee, and hitting Brian in the chest. The two fled to the library and hid in a utility closet. Eric and Dylan entered the school shortly after, through the same entrance. But they were distracted by the arrival of law enforcement outside. Deputy Neil Gardner was the first on the scene. As soon as he got out of his car, Eric fired roughly 10 shots at the deputy before his weapon jammed. The deputy returned fire, aiming four shots at Eric. He thought he initially hit Eric at first, but he was only turning to clear the jam in his gun. After their quick exchange of gunfire, Eric Harris retreated through the shattered west entrance to the school. And guys, I know this is a lot of information. I honestly could have done like four parts to this episode and I'm sorry that I didn't because I feel like some of you would have liked that. But because there's just so many witnesses and so many testimonies here that you really can get a full play-by-play of every second of that day from like 10 different angles. It's really incredible and it's amazing how much information there is and I think it has done so much good that there was a lot of information but it can be kind of hard to explain the full story. So I hope you're staying with me. I hope you're following along because we've got a lot more to get into. But moving on. So by 11.25 a.m., Patty Nielsen made it to the checkout desk in the library and frantically placed a 911 call as she tried to get the students into the library to hide under the tables. At the time, there were three staff members and 55 students in the library where she was. Once again, students thought it was just a joke or a prank, so she had to repeat herself several times before everyone started taking it seriously and, like, actually hiding under the tables like she told them. 
911 calls from students and neighbors who lived near the school began to flood in as well. As more people became aware that something was not right at Columbine. On the police band, dispatch informed officers that possible shots had been fired at the high school and that one female was down. Little did they know there were several other students down at this point. At 11.26 a.m., Deputy Gardner radioed for backup, telling dispatch, shots in the building, I need someone in the south lot with me. At this point, several officers were dispatched to the scene. Many students who weren't at lunch yet were still in classrooms and had no idea what was happening. A student in the gym hallway saw Dylan and Eric walking east down the north hallway, firing weapons and laughing. Dylan fired his semi-automatic down the east hall. Bullets ricocheted off lockers and lodged in walls as students fled the attack. Students Stephanie and Melissa stepped out of the tech lab classroom in the north hallway in time to see a teacher and several other students running towards the school's main entrance to the east. The teacher hollered for them to run and get out of the building. Dylan fired his Tech 9 at them and they ran for the east entrance as well. As they made it to the exit, Stephanie was shot in the ankle, but both girls were able to escape the building and make it to safety in Leewood Park across the street. After evacuating the cafeteria, Coach Sanders, that I mentioned earlier, headed up the stairs where he passed the library, motioning for Peggy Dodd that she and the others would stay put. Seeing Eric and Dylan ahead in the hall, Coach Dave Sanders turned and went back the way he came, but he was shot in the neck by Eric Harris. Coach Sanders was able to crawl to the corner of the science hallway where teacher Richard Long helped him into the classroom. A group of students, including Eagle Scouts Aaron Hansey and Kevin Starkey, attended to his injuries and administered first aid while others called 911. Coach Sanders laid bleeding out while the students tried to help. First responders could not get to the teacher because Columbine, along with the surrounding schools, were on lockdown for over three hours. Coach William Dave Sanders passed away due to the loss of blood. He was the only teacher killed that horrific day. His students said he was a teacher, a friend, a mentor, and an inspiration. He was the one who sounded the fire alarm when the gunmen started firing. He and the two custodians I mentioned earlier helped get more than 100 students out of the path of danger by herding them away from the shooters. By the time the gunmen arrived at the cafeteria, the room was nearly empty thanks to him. He was a true hero. Coach Sanders had a softball field at Columbine and a scholarship named after him to honor his memory. And in 2000, he received the prestigious Arthur Ashe Award at the ESPYs. His wife, three daughters, and five grandchildren accepted the award on his behalf. At 11.27 a.m., Deputy Neil Gardner radioed in a Code 33 which means officer needs emergency assistance. He also requested medical assistance to the west side of the school. It was at this time that Deputy Major set up a roadblock on Pierce Street where he was immediately approached by a teacher and several students who wanted to report a person at the school with a gun. Inside the school at this point, Eric and Dylan paced the library hallway for nearly three minutes, firing their weapons and throwing pipe bombs. 
They also had thrown two pipe bombs over the stairway rail into the cafeteria and two more in the library hallway. They definitely did lots of damage to the school itself, but thankfully they did not injure anyone during the time they were throwing the pipe bombs. However, the library ended up being the spot where most of the deaths would take place in a sort of hostage situation that took place within the library. At 11.29 a.m., Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold entered the library, hollering for everyone in the large room to get up. Loud enough that it could be heard over the phone Patty was holding. Witnesses hiding in the library's subrooms said they heard the gunman saying things such as, Everyone with a white cap or baseball cap stand up. And all jocks stand up. We'll get the guys in the white hats. Now, wearing a white hat at Columbine was a sign of being a jock or a student athlete. And there were several student athletes hiding in the library at that time. When no one stood up, one of the shooters was heard to say, Fine, I'll start shooting. Dylan and Eric proceeded through the library and a 16-year-old student named Kyle was sitting at a computer table when Dylan Klebold shot him, and he died instantly. The shooters had their backpacks filled with ammunition and Molotov cocktails down on one of the computer tables. And real quick, if you don't know what a Molotov cocktail is, it's usually some sort of bottle filled with flammable liquid like oil or gasoline, and at the top of the bottle is some sort of like rag or like flammable igniter that can be lit and thrown. And that usually causes it to explode. So FYI, that's kind of what it is. I don't know if that's a good way of explaining it, but that's kind of what it is. After reloading their weapons, the gunmen turned and began shooting out the West Library windows at law enforcement officers who were evacuating students at the time. Dylan stopped to take off his coat, dropping it near a table before firing his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring Patrick, Daniel, and Mackay Hall. Outside of the school, police returned fire but could not get a clear shot at either of the gunmen. Fortunately, Eric and Dylan had no better success at hitting people outside either. Eric turned away from the windows and opened fire on the nearest table to him. His shots killed Steve, and his second shot killed Casey. Again, I'm not saying last names here because I will totally butcher them. I've heard a few of them pronounced, but I'm going to say that and name them in the post um, that I make for this episode. So keep that in mind and just reminding you again. At 11.30 a.m., dispatch reported possible shots in the Columbine High School library. Jefferson County Patrol Deputy Rick Searle had his hands full evacuating fleeing students who had taken cover behind one of the officer's cars. At 11.31 a.m., Deputy Searle reported seeing smoke coming from the school. The fire alarms went off, blaring so loud that some people on the phones with 911 could no longer be heard by emergency operators. On the 911 call from the library, one of the gunmen could be heard shouting with excitement and several shots were recorded. At 11.32 a.m., the sheriff's office fielded the first media call from reporters seeking information. 
Media crews in the area flocked to the scene in droves, honestly, totaling close to 400 before it was all over. Inside the library around this time, Eric moved to a table where two girls were hiding. He slapped the top of the table twice. He then bent down and said, peekaboo, which runs chills through my body every time I think about it. This is before he shot and killed a student named Cassie. Another female student, Bree, was crouched down out in the open and there was no place for her to hide. Eric aimed his gun at her and asked her if she wanted to die. Bree pleaded with him saying, no, please don't shoot me. I have a family and a fiance. Eric laughed and said, everyone's going to die and we're going to blow up the school anyways. Dylan then called his attention to two boys hiding under another table. Eric forgot about Bree, and thankfully she survived the whole encounter. Although she didn't sleep for four straight days, and I'm sure she had many other sleepless nights because she was traumatized by her interaction with Eric Harris. When Dylan got Eric's attention, he was at another set of tables where three friends were hiding. A football player named Matthew... A wrestling member and ex-football player, Isaiah Scholes, whose dad later said that he had a dispute with the two shooters. Then there was Craig Scott, the younger brother of one of the first victims, Rachel Scott. Witnesses said that Isaiah could be heard saying he was scared and wanted to go home. Dylan made a racial comment towards Isaiah and tried to pull him out from under the table. When that didn't work, Eric fired under the other side of the table, killing Isaiah. Dylan followed his lead and shot under his side of the table as well, killing Matt. Craig Scott was miraculously uninjured, but pretended to be dead lying next to his murdered friends. Eric then threw a homemade bomb under the table where Mackay, Daniel, and Pat were. Mackay Hall grabbed the bomb and threw it back out past the gunman. It exploded midair without hurting anyone, which is amazing. Eric went over to a table where two girls were hiding. He bent down so he could look at them, then dismissed them as pathetic, which is just cocky and disgusting, but the whole act is disgusting. So, A student named Valene, who had been forced out of her hiding place by an earlier shot, cried out in a panic, saying, Oh my God, help me, several times. One of the shooters who was reloading his weapon at the time asked if she believed in God. She stumbled over her answer at first, saying no and then yes, trying to get the answer right in her mind. He asked her why, and she said it was because it was what her family believed. She crawled back under the table after that and pretended to die, because I believe she had been struck by a stray bullet previously, so she already kind of had an injury to her. And so she pretended to die at that point. At 11.35 a.m., the shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their guns at a table midway across the room. Eric noticed a student hiding under a nearby table and recognized him. He told him to identify himself. With Dylan aiming a gun at his head, the student, John Savage, identified himself. He was an acquaintance of Dylan's. John asked Dylan what's going on, to which Dylan casually replied, quote, oh, just killing people. I heard John Savage 
say this in an interview and it just, again, something else that's just brought chills to my whole body. Just to say it so casually and to your friend and like, that's your friend and oh, it's disturbing. But John asked if they were going to kill him too and Dylan told him to get out of the library. John left immediately, escaping through the library's main entrance. After firing more rounds at various tables in the library, three more students were killed. The gunman headed towards the administration desk. Eric then threw a Molotov cocktail again towards the other end of the library, but it didn't explode, luckily. The gunman left the library at 11.36 a.m. Silence quickly fell over the library from those left inside though everyone's ears were ringing from the explosions and the fire alarms blaring. Some of the survivors had said the sound of a fire alarm now brings back those memories as sort of a trigger for them. For the longest time after the gunmen left, nobody moved. No one looked at each other. No one spoke. Slowly, those left alive crept out of the library through the northern emergency exit that led out to the sidewalk where the massacre began. Individually and in groups of two or three, they escaped, fearful that the shooters would come back and finish what they started. At the time the two gunmen left the library, Deputy Searle reported a man on the roof wearing a red, white, and blue striped shirt. The man was actually thought to be a possible third shooter at the time, but he was later identified as an air conditioning repairman out on a service call to fix a leak above the girls' locker room. The repairman was on the roof for the first shots that were fired. He used a pair of vice grips to clamp shut the roof's access hatch so no one could come up on the roof. He then tried to hide himself so he wouldn't be shot. At the same time, the Jefferson County SWAT team commander arrived at Pierce and Leewood and declared that to be the SWAT staging area. From the library, Dylan and Eric made their way back down the hall to the science area. They looked in through the door windows of the locked classrooms. They even made eye contact with several students, but they didn't actually try to break into the rooms. Witnesses said that Eric and Dylan didn't appear to be overly intent on getting into classrooms, which is odd, but awesome for those that were taking cover there. They seemed to be directionless at this point, according to eyewitnesses. At 11.38 a.m., they threw several more pipe bombs down to the cafeteria. A teacher saw the gunman at 11.40 a.m. in the science hallway. Several of the students saw Dylan and Eric shoot into empty rooms after they taped a Molotov cocktail into a storage room next to the area where Coach Sanders and several students were hiding. That explosive caused a small fire in the storage room when it went off. And a teacher was actually able to put the fire out a short while later, once the gunman had left the area. At 11.44 a.m., the two headed back to the cafeteria once again. Eric stopped on the stairs and knelt down to fire several shots with his carbine at a duffel bag containing the 20-pound propane bombs they initially placed in the cafeteria. The bomb did not go off once again. Dylan walked over to the same bomb after Eric's failed attempts to detonate it and tampered with something on the floor, but again, nothing happened. A witness hiding in the cafeteria at the time heard one of the gunmen say, 
Today the world's going to come to an end. Today's the day we die. The cafeteria surveillance footage showed Dylan light what appeared to be a pipe bomb and throw it at the other bomb in the duffel bag. Smaller containers of flammable liquids were attached to the bomb and these were ignited by whatever Dylan threw, causing a fire as the shooters went back upstairs at 11.46 a.m. In the surveillance footage, you can see students that had been hiding in the cafeteria still crawling out of the exit doors, escaping the fire. Between 11.53 a.m. and 11.56, the two had went to the art hall, firing their weapons into the ceiling, and then made their way back down to the cafeteria once again. Some would say they look defeated based on their posture in the security footage, and at this point, none of the bombs they created had worked properly, thankfully. At 12 p.m., an armored vehicle arrived because the area was deemed unsafe for medical personnel trying to get on the scene. Constant broadcasts on TV were now airing on television stations nationwide. At 12.04 p.m., the Denver SWAT team finally started to approach the school. And less than a minute later, the first SWAT team arrived at the school's east entrance. Jefferson County SWAT Deputy Alan Simmons had a team of five men who entered the building through the southeast entrance. At the same time, paramedics were able to rescue the students lying out on the sidewalk pretending to be dead. Both students, Sean Graves and Anne Marie, can't pronounce her last name, were both shot in the back and were both paralyzed from the waist down. Both would later need wheelchairs, however, and Lance Kirkland was rescued as well and transported to a makeshift triage area a few blocks away. Lance was the one that was shot at point-blank range in the face. He was one of the initial victims. Police had to provide cover for paramedics during this time because they were being shot at from the broken windows of the second-floor library. Officers returned fire to provide cover. At this point, some time during the return fire, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold shot themselves. Because after 12.05 p.m., no more shots came from the two gunmen. A smoke alarm on the ceiling went off in the library at 12.08 p.m., above where the shooter's bodies were later found. A small Molotov cocktail had been placed on a nearby table by one of the gunmen. The lit fuse of the thing was hot enough to break the glass of the bottle, allowing the flammable liquid to spill out and cause a small fire. That's what set off the fire alarm, but it didn't cause an explosion. Arson investigators determined the small fire occurred after the shooters killed themselves. From there, the SWAT team took their time rescuing various students and teachers still inside the building all while making sure to look out for booby traps rumored to be around the school. The SWAT team sent a team of five through the upper level who stopped at closed doors in the halls that separated them from the science rooms, choir room, and library, where the majority of the students were hiding. Some were wounded, and some were even deceased. About 20 students were freed at this time. At 1.09 p.m., the SWAT team secured the teacher's lounge and then looked into the cafeteria, which was just destroyed and soaked in three to four inches of water from the sprinkler system, which was still spraying at the time 
from the bombs going off. Melted chairs, dangling ceiling tiles, exposed wire, and abandoned backpacks were everywhere. Sergeant Williams' team was left at the cafeteria entrance to secure it. When the team went in, they found students hiding in the kitchen storage rooms, terrified and up to their ankles in water. The SWAT team's black uniforms and weapons made the traumatized survivors slow to respond, fearing they were the original gunmen, which was the case several times actually throughout their search of the school, trying to evacuate students. 20 to 30 students were evacuated from the kitchen area. They found two males shivering and half frozen in the freezer area. Police were able to evacuate students in all of the classrooms that were still hiding along with their teachers. It wasn't until 3.25 p.m. that the SWAT team finally made it to the library. The four officials who entered had to step over numerous bombs trying to get to each of the victims. They found a female student named Lisa, badly injured but still alive, and they called for paramedics. Lisa was the last surviving victim to be removed from the school. At 4.30 p.m., Columbine High School was officially declared safe, but more officers were called at 5.30 p.m. when explosives were found in the parking lots. At 6.15 p.m., the bomb squad found a live bomb in Dylan's car. After this, the sheriff declared the whole school a crime scene, with all of the victims' bodies still inside. The deceased victims couldn't be moved until a full investigation was done. At 10.45 p.m., the car bomb went off when an official tried to defuse it, damaging the BMW without injuring anyone, luckily. And that was the end to one of the most horrific days in history. The next day, thousands of people came and went from the school, leaving flowers and other memorial-like gifts. I believe classes were put on hold for about a week or so after the tragedy, and there were only a few weeks left of the semester anyways. But the neighboring high school, Chatfield High, opened their doors and allowed the Columbine students to share their school for classes to finish out the year. During that time and throughout the summer, workers removed the carpets in the main hallways, repaired bullet-riddled walls, lockers, and classrooms, and moved the library to a trailer on the school grounds. In addition, the school installed a security system that Principal DeAngelis described as second to none. Now more than 18 security cameras dot the hallways. An automatic gated system can seal off sections of the school if an intruder enters, and a computerized identification card system limits access to the building outside of regular school hours. In 2000, Healing of People Everywhere, or HOPE, a private Denver-based organization formed by the families of the students and teachers who were killed or injured at Columbine, raised nearly $3.5 million. That money went to ripping up the old library floor. Then they built a vast atrium in that spot with a mural on the ceiling depicting a swirl of trees underneath a beautiful blue sky. The principal said the parents felt the library needed to be opened up. It would have been too difficult for staff and students to go in because 10 of the 13 student victims 
were killed in the library, and that is where the gunmen took their own lives as well. Hope also covered the construction cost of a new 13,900 square foot library, which opened in April of 2001 on the southwest side of the building. 75% of the teaching staff returned for the following school year. However, by 2004, less than 30 of the original staff of 158 members were still there. It was proven to be too difficult for them to remain at Columbine. However, as of the 20-year anniversary, there were just 13 educators still teaching at Columbine. But I know of at least five students that are now teachers at the school and who are proud to be there. So, I know that was tough. It was a lot to uncover and go through. I hope you were able to follow along with me. But the main reason I wanted to cover this again was just to talk about a few things. I think this was an important story to tell. There's the bullying aspect surrounding this case with the jocks versus the outsiders. Gun violence is a whole debate that I will never get into, but is a huge deal with this case. And even mental health. These two were suicidal and mentally unstable. That's completely clear. Dylan Klebold's mom, Susan, is now a public speaker. She did a TED Talk a few years ago that I watched a little bit of and just told the story of how she literally had no idea that her son was suicidal, let alone angry enough to attack his high school and attack his classmates. She said she would get death threats and mean, hateful comments from people saying, there's no way you didn't know what your son was capable of. And she said she really didn't she would have done anything to try to stop him if she knew. So to me, that's something I need to point out because I know teenagers can be moody and angry, even though they may not go shoot up their school. It's still important to know where your kids are mentally or where your friends are mentally. Are they angry? If so, do they need help? Do they need just a shoulder to cry on or somebody to talk to? Or do they need a professional? You can be that friend. You can be that outlet that they need so they don't do something so unspeakable like this. And lastly, just hold your friends and family tight. Hug them, tell them you love them because you just never know just how short life can be. With that said, guys, I am going to try to remember to leave some links in the show notes for documentaries, YouTube videos, the TED Talk that I mentioned, and anything else related to the case that I found interesting or that I think you guys should check out. So with that said, guys, that's going to be it for me. I hope you liked the episode and I can't wait to be back in two weeks for the next one. Until then, please stay safe out there, guys. See you soon. Bye.